Well, brethren, let's uh, turn once again to um, Malachi and uh, chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. I'm excited about preaching this evening, and I'm not sure whether the excitement is because of the sermon I'm preaching itself, but of content or the sermon I'm preaching by way of fact, because uh, it's finally the last sermon on this trip in the USA. <laughs> I have been in this country for a month now, so the Lord willing, we begin our homeward journey uh, tomorrow morning. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's good to see finally the tail end of uh, the, the ministry here. If you're already in Malachi 3, allow me to give the background of uh, all that we are about to look at. We began this morning by looking at uh, um, chapter 2, verse 17, all the way to chapter 3 and uh, verse 12. And basically what we were seeing there was God uh, bringing answers to the way God's people were thinking in the days of Malachi. And basically they were thinking that it does not pay to serve God. Part of the context in which they were living was that they were living in the light of God's promises. And the promises through previous uh, prophets suggested that Israel was going to experience a glorious season, such as they have never known before. But as we saw both from Haggai and Zechariah, that picture that was there was definitely not what they were experiencing at that time. Instead, as we quite rightly noted, their worship was uh, corrupted, there was failure, both in, if we could use the phrase, in the church, but talking here in terms of in the temple, there was also, in terms of priests failing, there was also failure in the marriages, in the context of the home. They were still very much under a foreign um, regime, under um, the Persians at that time. And so where is this fulfillment? Where do we have these nations bringing their treasures to us when right now we are the ones paying tributes to these foreign nations? But even within the context of Israel itself, it was fairly evident that those who were living in outright sin and wickedness, those who were oppressing others, seemed to have been getting away with things. And those that were seeking to live for God were continuing to suffer uh, oppression and all other kinds of persecution. Hence the phrase that we looked at uh, this morning where they were saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he, referring to God, delights in them. What we saw in God's answer was that he brought in the phase of the New Testament, the new covenant, 
ushered in initially by John the Baptist, the messenger who was to prepare the way for the Lord, and then realized in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ that he is the one who is going to bring about a new humanity, a, a people that would genuinely be worshippers of the living God and thus uh, worship him appropriately. And then God himself was going to judge all these nations that were going wrong, rather his own people who were going wrong even within the context of Israel. And then finally, we noticed, you will recall, that those who have this kind of thinking that it doesn't pay to, to follow God in, in integrity, that they tend to hold back their service from God, their finances from God, and so forth. And so God now came after them and basically said to them, that if I was a God who does not change, you would be destroyed. Rather, if I was a God who changes, you would be destroyed. Yes. Uh, I gave you two negatives and ended up with a positive in the process. Okay. So, uh, ultimately, he challenged them, saying, you change your ways and I will bless you. Basically, that's where we ended. Uh, this evening, we are coming to yet another accusation, and this is now uh, in verse 13. <clears throat> in a sense, it's the same accusation as the one we saw before, and God proceeds to correct this. So let's look at verse 13 um, all the way to verse 15. Here is the accusation. God says, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So really, it's the same hard words that he used at the end of chapter 2. It doesn't, serve, doesn't pay to serve God. And that's why uh, this evening, the title of my sermon has just been tweaking the first one. So in the morning, we're looking at thinking it doesn't pay to save God, but now we are saying knowing it really pays to save God. Because what we have here is um, the, the accusation that um, it, it, it is vain to save God. That's really... The, the accusation against the Lord. The previous one was measuring a lot more on simply saying, God, you seem to be happy with bad people. This one is simply adding that conclusion, which in a sense we put into the first. And the conclusion is, it is vain to serve God. 
what is the profit that we are getting out of this? Well, let's proceed then to look at the way in which God answers this accusation and again apply it to our own hearts. First of all, it is simply the fact that while the general mindset, thinking, is as has been pictured here, within the context of God's people, you always have a remnant. You always have those that are not being represented by this majority. And the remnant tends to still want to follow God, to serve God. The, that remnant is one that also spends time encouraging one another in the midst of decadent times. This is what we see then in verse 16 down to verse to the very end of this chapter, verse 16 down to verse 18. Listen to this. So here are these complaints, these, these hard words against the Lord. Verse 16, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who saves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. The point there that seems to be pretty obvious is the fact that, yes, right now, you may be saying, what's the point of saving the Lord? Look at the state in which we are. But he's saying, I want to assure you, a time is going to come, as we saw this morning, when the distinction will be plain very plain. But even before we get there, he's giving us a peep into the mindset, the corridors, the rank and file of the remnant. Of the remnant. I love the way they are described. Those who fear the Lord. In other words, they are individuals who, whatever the situation might be, they have reverence for the Lord. They recognize that life is not about me. No, 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 no. It's not about me and my children. It's about God. And therefore, whatever it is that the Lord has allowed, so be it, we must still Render to him that which is his due. He is God. So they feared the Lord. They spoke with one another. 
In other words, they treasured the fellowship of the one another's, the fellowship of God's true children, the, the, the fellowship of others who fear the Lord. And the reason why they treasured that fellowship, speaking with one another, is because it gives them mutual encouragement. Mutual encouragement. You know, sometimes when you are among those who claim to be Christians and they are lukewarm, you, you feel as though you, you've gone among people who have got maybe a flu. And so by the time you are leaving, you're also beginning to notice that your, your, your nostrils are getting blocked and your, your throat is feeling a little itchy and you begin to realize, no, I think I've caught something from them. That's the way it often is. You feel defiled. You, you begin to wonder, now, am I really doing the right thing in continuing the way I am going and so on? It, it, it brings corruption and defilement upon you. And then you find yourself among those that are walking with the Lord in genuine sincerity and integrity. And out of that fellowship, you begin to say to yourself, I really need to pull up my socks. The exact opposite effect. Yeah, I, I, I really need to pray more. I need to, I need to read my Bible more. I need, I need to, to be involved a lot more in evangelistic work. I need to disciple other believers. You, your attitude has completely changed. Why? Because of the encouraging effect of being among others who love and fear the Lord. And often, when you are um, in that kind of company, the kind of things that you are also speaking about is the kind of things that at the beginning of this same letter to Malachi, it was God's concerns. Those are the very truths that become the concerns of the actual people of God who fear him. So, for instance, in chapter 1, God was concerned about the, the way in which his people were doubting his love for them. And again, that's the kind of subject that would engross those who fear the Lord, the, the eternal, sovereign love of God for his people. And then, of course, the second part of chapter 1 was engrossed with this corrupt worship, the empty worship, the, the offering of blind animals and lame animals and diseased animals that the priests were accepting. They were accepting substandard worship. And again, you find that the remnant will be speaking about that. They will be bemoaning the way in which the worship of God has been turned into a circus. And they, they, they bemoan that. They want to encourage one another in the midst of that. And then, as we saw, the failure of the priests in chapter 2, the, the 
um, unfaithfulness that was there in, in the marital and domestic context, again, God's people, those who fear him, will be speaking with one another about this because it bothers them that God's people are so compromised, so worldly, so sinful, they bemoan those facts and they speak to one another. They also speak to one another, if we can now throw in this issue of serving him, about those who are saying it doesn't pay to serve the Lord. They will again be encouraging one another in order to continue serving the Lord. But let's go further, because in speaking with one another, they are also encouraging one another in the singing of hymns, glorious hymns. They are singing them together, because in doing so, they are tuning their hearts appropriately with affection and love to God. And they are also praying together. Praying together. So all this is New Testament language. Remember the way in which the Apostle Paul says, speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So when we are singing, when we are just singing to God, we are encouraging one another. Oh, church of God, arise. And we are saying we should not be content with where we are. Let's do better. What this passage is telling us, back to Malachi and chapter 3, is that while this is happening among the remnant, God is taking note. It's not going past his attention. He is eavesdropping. And is bringing a lot of joy to his own heart. The Lord paid attention. The Lord heard them. He said, write these things down. A book of remembrance is written before those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. And then the Lord says, they shall be mine. Because he loves what is going on among the remnant. And he is saying, on that day, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. God is delighted with that remnant. The faithful few, he is delighted about them. And he says, on that day, you will see the distinction between them and the wicked, between them who serve me and those who don't. Let me ask the question, where are you today? Are you among those who are complaining and complaining and complaining that it doesn't really pay to serve the Lord? because perhaps of some frowning providence that you've had to go through again and again and again? Or are you among those who fear the Lord, who are 
in the fellowship of the remnant. Where are you? I've never forgotten this capturing or gripping me when I was in university. It's, it's uh, uh, many years ago now when I was studying for my uh, undergraduate studies. And you would go from one hall of residence to another. You'd go from one room where Christians are gathered together around a cup of tea. In those days, we hardly knew coffee at all. And then you go to another. Again, you've got a company of believers doing the same. And it was amazing how in one room, it is all about politics and about sport and about you know, just how terrible the economy is and the politicians and, and on and on and on it was and how we should now try and make sure we make our money and on and on. And you begin thinking, wow, this is life. Then you cross over to another part of the university, you find another group, and it's like you've gone from darkness to light. And there they are speaking about how the service was, and usually that would be happening on Sunday evening. You're going from uh, church, you've come back, and now you want to have your last-minute fellowship before you get back to your books. And so you go to another one, and they're really enthralled by how the services were that day, the morning service, the evening service, the preaching of God, God's word, the truths that were learned, the, the conviction that, that came upon them and, and the need for us to, to do better, to, to be salt and light in the world and so on. And by the time you're leaving, you're thinking, wow, here are two categories of supposedly both of them God's people. But in the one, clearly, you have better company. You have the remnant. What's the effect that you have on other believers. What's the effect? Is it that of encouraging them or is in the things of God or is that of dragging them down in the things of, into the things of the world, worldly thinking? Which one is you? Well, the Lord goes on to say in, in chapter 1 that uh, on that final day of judgment, that's when the distinction will be seen. So he's already hinted at it, saying, then once more you shall see the distinction. But now he is drawing our attention to what that day will be. And it will be a day when the sun of righteousness will shine and is going to have two effects upon the people depending on which category you are in. Let's say that from verse 1 to verse 3. For behold, the day is coming. And then it says, burning like an oven. Feels a little bit like uh, Arizona, doesn't it? Uh, in... in in a few weeks' time, I've been told. Thankfully, I won't be here. 
when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like cows from the store, and you shall tread down the wicked, for there will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. The picture there is simply referring to the day of judgment. That that same day, by the righteousness of God, the wicked will perish. By that same righteousness of God, the righteous will prosper because they will get their eternal reward. And God uses this picture of this rising sun, the rising sun. The Bible speaks about the second coming of Christ, saying that those who pierced him, what will they do? They'll be calling upon the rocks to cover them from the wrath of the Lamb. He will come in judgment, and he will punish them. He says the arrogant, all evildoers will be stubble. They will be set ablaze. There will be neither root nor branch left of them. That's not suggesting annihilation. All it is saying is that there will not be anything left of them worth talking about. Everything about them, their wealth, their prosperity, their lives, however long they may have lived, their fame, their nobility, all that will also go with them. On that day of judgment, when they are sent to hell forever. Anybody who would have been admiring them by that time would be saying, what a fool I was. What a fool. Look at their end. But that same day of judgment we are being told here will, will bring healing in its wings to those who are God's people. What does that mean? Talking about all their sorrow, all their tears, all their mourning will pass away. Instead, they will know fulfillment. They will know a joy that will never, ever be taken away. They will know God rewarding them forever and ever and ever. The picture he uses here is that of leaping cows from the stall. If you've ever uh, seen this in a movie or a clip or just on an actual farm, it's the way in which when you open the stall in the morning for cows and they come out and the way in which they're sort of jumping all over the place. They're excited. They're free now, finally, from the stall. That's the picture that is being employed here. At one time, you were caged in by the reality of a fallen world. All you could do was to whisper 
to one another as those who fear the Lord, just whispering to one another. But now, the whole earth is yours. The home of righteousness. It's all yours. The streets of gold, the mansions bright. You can now live out all your life in complete fulfillment, worshiping God with a heart that never sins. That's what he's saying here. When the Lord comes to act, even the aspect of vindication is finally captured here. When he says in verse 3, you shall tread down the wicked, for there shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day I act, says the Lord. Again, that's picture language there. And it is the fact that you will finally crush your enemies. In this life, they may have appeared to have been victorious. They may have even not only persecuted you, but even killed you in the process. But on that day, you will crush them. You will be the winner. They will be the absolute losers. May I suggest to you that this is what we need to know now. To know what? It really pays to save this God. It does. Right now, it may not look like that. But it's a matter of time. You will see that that's actually the way it is. So, recognize that saving God is priceless. The kind of rewarding we will receive is a million, million, billion, billion, trillion, trillion times more than that which would have been our investment in this life. It is priceless. So what should we do then, if that's the case? Well, I'm using the words of uh, a hymn by the Gettys. Put your armor on and heed the call of Christ, our captain. That's what we find in verse 4 to verse 6, and this finishes the whole chapter. An old hymn used to say, Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. That's basically what these last verses are saying. Verse 4 to verse 6. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Now, in saying remember the law, he's not saying you sort of sit there and say, oh, yes, I remember. <laughs> what he's saying is put it into practice. Live by it. That's really what he is saying by remembering. At Horeb, the nation of Israel got the ceremonial law, the priesthood of Levi, the covenant, and everything. It was all given to them. How they were to worship, how they were to live with respect to one another, all that was given. 
And God is simply saying, get back to it. That's all he's asking. Nothing extraordinary. He's simply saying, get back to the foundation. That which I gave you as my word and live by it. Well, as you know, the ceremonial law and the civil law, which was the outworking of the moral law applied to the nation of Israel, is one that has been fulfilled in Christ. But the Ten Commandments now coming through the New Testament eyes is still an abiding law of God for us. It will never be superseded. Even though we enter the 21st century, the Christian church must still live by this good book. So all he is saying is get back to this. Don't listen to all those philosophies and, and recent so-called discoveries and so forth. Don't listen to them. Keep this book. Remember this book, and you will not be ashamed. That's really what he's saying. But let's go on, because he also brings in this New Testament as he speaks in verse 5 downwards. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of complete, utter destruction. What he's talking about there is, trust me, I will fulfill my promise. I will bring about this phase, which is the phase we are living in today. Now, at the time he was speaking through Malachi, it was at least 400 years before the coming of this Elijah the prophet. In case you're wondering who this Elijah the prophet is, if you jump to Matthew chapter 11, Matthew 11 and verse 14, Let me begin from verse 12. This is Jesus speaking. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. If you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So he's referring to the book of Malachi. And he's saying that Elijah that was promised is actually not Elijah coming back from the dead. It's this same John the Baptist. He has come before that great and awesome day of the Lord comes. In other words, he begins that phase that finally ends with God judging the, the wicked. In between, 
he would turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the children to their fathers. This is something that he was said to be doing as we notice. Let's just quickly look at Mark 9 as well. Mark 9 and verse 11. Mark 9 and verse 11. I hope I've got it right here. Yes, Mark 9 and verse 11. And then we'll also quickly look at Luke 1 and verse 17. Luke 1 verse 17. Okay, so let's quickly look at Mark 9 verse 11. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. So that's still John the Baptist. They killed him, as you know. The turning of the children to their fathers and the first of the children is found in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And uh, I begin reading from verse 16. And he would turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So it is this same John the Baptist and is simply referring to the way in which he would usher in this new phase that would prepare for the coming of Jesus when he would be bringing people through baptism into the knowledge of God. And as we all know, that's exactly what John did, hence the name John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. That's what this is all about. It's pointing to redemption that is coming in Christ. So on one hand, God is saying, live by the book. And then on the other, he is saying, I am bringing salvation. I am bringing redemption through Jesus Christ so that you can now have hope. Hope that I will fulfill everything that I have said. Otherwise, I will come and destroy the land completely. The only reason why there is hope is because of the redemption that I, I am bringing in Christ. And so our role is to obey his word. Our role is to trust him, to trust him. Especially where we are now standing. You know, for, for the Israelites that Malachi was speaking to, yes, we can understand if they're still looking, thinking, mm, is, is this going to happen? 
But for us, he came. This Elijah, he came. The one he was prophesying that is going to come also came. He died. He rose again. We are on the opposite side of seeing that bunch of promises of God fulfilled. Why should we doubt the other bunch that is saying he will come again? Surely we should trust and obey knowing that it really pays to save this God. Again, as we finish this morning, let me finish on the same note by saying, if for any reason you jumped away from being in this remnant, this remnant that is trusting and obeying, trusting and obeying, despite the, the darkness and, and the compromise and the sin and wickedness that is even filling the so-called church of Jesus Christ. If you are, you were part of this remnant and then you got corrupted, you got infested with that same worldliness and you strayed away, come back. Come back to Christ. Renew your faith in him. He will repay his own. He will reward his own. Because even now, in the midst of all this, he's eavesdropping. He's listening to those conversations of those who really want to serve him. He will reward them in the end. So go back to him. <clears throat> Ask him to cleanse your sin of compromise, your sin of being in a backslidden state, your sin of worldliness, that sin that has caused you to corrupt others who are God's children. Go to him that his blood might wash away those sins and renew your walk with him. Because trust me, it really pays to save this God. That final day will show it. It really pays. So renew your commitment to this God. Thank him that because he doesn't change, he hasn't gotten rid of you. Thank him for that. But do much more than that. Renew your own devotion to him. He has loved you with an everlasting love. Love him back. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word spoken so long ago, so very long ago, and yet so relevant to us. Because we confess, O oh Lord, that there are times when we begin to wonder whether serving you 
is worth it. Lord, forgive us for speaking and thinking such hard words about you. Renew our obedience by your Holy Spirit. Renew our trust in you by your Holy Spirit. And help us to be a people that will really live for you with love ablaze for the living God in the midst of a decadent age and a corrupt church. We plead this for Jesus' sake. Amen.